I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 46, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 113 to 127. Chapter 4, Homosexuality and the Rise of the Modern Secular State. Introduction. Beginning in the late 1700s, including the brief period known as the Enlightenment, there occurred a dramatic paradigm shift in the phenomenon of same-sex erotic relationships throughout the Western world. The rise of the modern state with its vast urban centers and secularized government opened the door for the development of a new homosexual collective and subculture in major cities throughout Europe, including London, Berlin, and Amsterdam. These new urban metropolises offered the homosexual both anonymity as well as increased opportunities for same-sex assignations and political activism associated with the cause, that is, the legalization of consensual homosexual acts. From a moral perspective, the final fruits of the Reformation had resulted in a cleaved Christendom. No longer was there one authority, one voice, to rule infallibly on matters of faith and morals. Now there were two distinct religions, two distinct cultures, and two distinct moral codes. The church was no longer the center of a nation's religious, cultural, and intellectual life. Nor was the modern man preoccupied with matters of God. He, like the state he represented, was at once secular of spirit, scientific and progressive in thought, and liberal in politics and morals. Religious sanctions based on natural law, including the prohibitions against certain vices such as pederasty and homosexuality, were severely weakened. However, they had not disappeared entirely. Protestantism was still to a large extent living off its Catholic capital in terms of family life and sexual morality. In any case, the new Protestant doctrine of the supremacy of individual conscience did not extend to the sodomite in its pursuit of illicit and unnatural pleasures. The common view held by Catholic and Protestant alike, especially within the new middle class, remained pretty much what it has always been in Christian society. Sodomy was a grievous sin against God and a crime against the state. Only in the upper classes, for whom discretion was known to cover a multitude of sins, did one find a certain degree of tolerance toward habituated homosexuals. As Barnhouse observed, to engage in the more picturesque realms of licentiousness, after all, takes both leisure and money. In the eyes of many aristocrats or prominent members of society, one's private vices and sexual peccadilloes were in no one else's business. Or as a cleaning lady is supposed to have uttered in giving testimony at the trial of Oscar Wilde, I think people should be allowed to do what they want as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. However, as we shall soon see, during the 19th century, there were a significant number of major national and international incidents involving homosexuality in which more than the horses were frightened. When the details of these sex scandals, especially those involving the aristocracy or high government officials, reached the general public, there was almost always a severe backlash from the populace who demanded a greater enforcement of the existing anti-sodomy laws. This, this scenario, however, was the exception, not the rule. Although anti-buggery laws remained on the books long after most governments had abolished the death penalty for sodomy, enforcement of these laws throughout Europe was erratic and determined largely by the political whims of the governing regime. In England and Germany, where anti-sodomy laws were most strictly enforced, there were cases that were prosecuted to the full extent of the law with catastrophic results for the offender and his family. Public exposure as a habituated homosexual often spelled personal ruin and public disgrace. Then there was the matter of harsh legal penalties, including heavy fines, banishment or exile, or imprisonment in a jail or a lunatic asylum. At the end of the 19th century, however, there were new voices being raised in opposition to this traditional punitive approach to homosexuality. In addition to leaders of an emerging sexual emancipation movement, there were also a growing number of prominent physicians, including so-called sexologists, who were attempting to find a new solution to the age-old problem of same-sex erotic attraction. 
medical science, especially psychiatry, was in the process of developing a new medical model to deal with all forms of abnormal sexual behavior, including homosexuality. No longer were acts of sodomy viewed within the traditional context of a willful moral failing to be absolved in the confessional or a crime to be punished by the courts. Rather, same-sex attraction was now considered to be a form of psychosexual pathology associated with a particular type of individual, the homosexual who, with proper medical or psychiatric treatment, could be redirected toward the goal of sexual normalcy. Many of these advocates of the medicalization of same-sex behavior joined with socialist and anarchist leaders in the call for the doctrinalization of homosexual behavior. The state did not interfere in the life of the homosexual, they argued, unless his behavior involved the seduction of minors, sexual violence, or disruption of the public order. One can easily sense in this new medical model a subtle change in semantics and meaning of the word homosexual from that of an, ab an adjective describing an act or vice to a noun indicating a certain type of kind or type of person, that is, a homosexual or invert. The implications of this important semantic shift did not escape the attention of the leaders of the early homosexual emancipation movement. Vice, like error, has, has no rights, but people, including perverts, do. The Victorian experience, the transition from Molly to Hellenistic homosexual. It is somewhat surprising that during the 150 years that lay between the emergence of the effeminate homosexual or Molly of the late English Renaissance and that of the new more sophisticated Hellenistic breed of homosexuals that marked the Victorian age, anti-burglary statutes remained essentially in a, intact with three modifications. In 1781, the courts ruled that in sodomy cases, the prosecution had to prove both penetration and the emission of male seed in order to gain a conviction. However, shortly thereafter, this provision was deleted and sodomy was once again defined in the terms of penetration only, no matter how slight. During the period uh, the dual requirement was enforced, the number of convictions for sodomy in England fell off precipitously, as it was difficult enough to prove penetration, much less emission. In 1861, with the passage of the Offenses Against the Person Act, the death penalty was abolished for sodomy. But sodomy remained illegal and punishable by fines and imprisonment up to 10 years. The most radical change in Britain's anti-sodomy laws occurred in August 1885 when a provision known as the Le Boucher Amendment was introduced into Parliament during debate on the white slavery and juvenile prostitution. Two years earlier, the reform-minded W.T. Stead, editor of the Full Mall Gazette, the Pall Mall Gazette had written a controversial and scalding series on the horror of child female prostitution in London's squalid, overcrowded East End and even the more prosperous West End. The expose was based on a six-week investigation by Stead and Gazette journalists led to the founding of the National Vigilance Association and finally spurred a recalcitrant parliament into action. Under the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, the age of consent, consent was raised from 13 to 16 years, and the police were given broader powers to suppress brothels and arrest the clients of prostitutes. Henri Dupré-Laboucher, MP, one of the wealthiest and most powerful radicals in the House of Commons, was concerned not only with female child prostitution, but also the growing demand for young boys by wealthy pederasts. He succeeded in attaching an anti-sodomy clause, Section 11, to the Criminal Law Amendment Act. The amendment in its final form read, any male person who in public or private commits or is, or is party to the commission of or procures or attempts to procure the commission by any male person of any 
act of gross indecency with another male person shall be guilty of a misdemeanor, and being convicted thereof shall be liable at the discretion of the court to be imprisoned for any term not exceeding two years, with or without hard labor. Under the new law, the prison sentence for a convicted sodomite was drastically reduced from ten to two years. However, whereas the old laws had defined sodomy strictly in terms of anal penetration, the Lubbershire Amendment used a broader terminology, acts of gross indecency, that would extend to other homosexual acts, including mutual and interfemoral masturbation and palatial between male persons without regard to active and passive roles. It, is also, it also criminalized both public and private same-sex indecencies. Naturally, there were those critics who did not consider the LeBoucher Amendment to be progressive. Some compared it to Germany's infamous paragraph 175 that will be examined later in this chapter. They dubbed the measure a blackmailer's charter since at least theoretically any man could fabricate a private incident for possible extortion purposes. This charge, however, underestimated the severity of punishment meted out under English law for false testimony given under oath. There was also the matter of self-incrimination, that is, the accuser in a court of law would open himself up to possible legal action. It also tended to obfuscate the obvious. Blackmail and extortion have always been potential features of illicit sexual behavior, more so where, the, where same-sex acts are involved. Many of these op opponents of the Lubbershire Amendment then and today appear to overlook the most salient feature of the Lubbershire Amendment, that is, that its primary objectives were the curbing of underage male prostitution combined with a more active prosecution of pederast homosexuals. Previously, sexual assault cases involving boys and girls over 12 years of age was not considered a criminal offense. The protection of vulnerable working-class boys from older predatory homosexuals rather than the punishment or prosecution of consenting adult homosexuals was the driving force behind the Lubbershire Amendment. Generally speaking, its passage did not drastically change the overall pattern of police enforcement of anti-sodomy laws involving consenting ma adult males. With very rare exceptions from the late 1700s until the turn of the 20th century, law enforcement officers usually observed a laissez-faire attitude toward adult homosexuals and their adult partners, more especially if they were members of the aristocracy or men of acquired fortune and influence. If an upper-class toff wanted to exercise his unnatural passions with a willing adult partner, be he a renter or a or rough trade or soldier prostitute, and he was willing to pay for the sexual service, that was his business. All that was required was a modicum of discussion. However, <clears throat> cases involving organized homosexual assignations, including public houses that catered to homosexual clubs, and those cases involving minors, or a disruption of the public order continued to be the object of periodic police action. The danger of arrest and public exposure remained a fact of life for those men who chose to immerse themselves in London's criminal underworld, especially for the pederast. The Beer Street Scandal In July of 1810, the police arrested more than 20 members of the notorious Beer Street Coterie who used to congregate and act out at the White Swan Public House on Beer Street. The members of the homosexual club were generally older men, many of whom were married and included some prominent public figures. Their young guests were local Mary Ann's male prostitutes who in Molly fashion often dressed up in pretty female attire and assumed female names and played the passive role. The effeminate model, however, was not the only type of passive homosexual available to the membership. There were also more manly types that to be had for those members who preferred rough trade. In his 1970 study of the history of homosexuality in Britain, 
the love that dared not speak its name, journalist and former MP H. Montgomery Hyde presented a lively description of the antics of the Beer Street Gang, including their mock weddings and group consummations and obscene language. The public was not amused. In his report of the events leading up to the conviction and imprisonment of a handful of Beer Street conspirators, including James Cook, the owner of the White Swan, and five of his companions, Hyde described the reception the men received as they stood in the gallery for one hour before being taken to Newgate Prison. He said that angry spectators mercilessly pelted the condemned men with all forms of rotten foods and animal dung. Afterwards, on their return to prison, the prisoners were continuously assaulted with whips and plying projectiles, including bricks and stones. The streets, as they passed, resounded with the universal shouts and execrations of the populace, Hyde concluded. In December of the same year, guardsman Thomas White, a familiar face at the Veer Street gatherings, met an even harsher fate. White, along with Ensign John Hepburn, who proclaimed his innocence to the last, was found guilty of sodomy and of offending against good order and discipline. Both men were publicly hanged outside Newgate with a vast crowd, including military officials and several noblemen in attendance. There is little doubt that the execution was intended to serve as a warning to other members of the armed forces who might be tempted to supplement their meager wages by acting the catamite for wealthy and homosexual patrons. In retrospect, the intensity of public outrage against convicted sodomites, especially by today's standards, may be totally incomprehensible. Were it not for one important but often ignored fact, that is, the object of choice for many adult homosexuals remained adolescent boys and young men. These pederastic relationships were characterized by disparities not only in age but also in terms of wealth, power, and influence. It is certainly an open question as to whether or not many of the homosexual scandals that rocked English society during the Victorian era would have engendered such violent public reaction had they not involved the seduction and the sexual exploitation of young boys and youth, i.e. the sex abuse of minors. Clerical Crimes In the introduction to his chapter on clerical pederasty and homosexuality in Victorian England, Hyde noted that most cases involving clergymen never came to trial. The accused was granted bail and automatic courtesy given his superior social status, and he invariably fled the country to escape prosecution. For example, at the turn of the 19th century, the prominent Reverend John Fenwick of Northumberland, who was reported to have acquired the unmentionable vice as an undergraduate at Oxford, absconded not once but twice to France and finally settled in Naples, Italy, to escape the arm of the English law. The Reverend B.P. Littlehales of Lincolnshire, accused of sexually assaulting a footman in the employment of a certain Dr. Wollaston, forfeited his bail and fled to America. The case of the Irish aristocrat, Wright Reverend Percy Jocelyn, the Anglican Bishop of Clower and third son of the first Earl of Bowden, of Roden is very forthright. On the evening of July 19, 1822, during a visit to London from Ireland, the bishop was caught in flagrante delicto with a private soldier named John Mobley at a public house called the White Hart. The next day, both men were charged with a homosexual offense before a local cat magistrate. They entered a plea of not guilty, private Mobley unable to post the minimum bail and sureties was remanded in custody. The bishop, on the other hand, immediately posted bond, was released, and shortly thereafter fled to Scotland, where he lived incognito, performing menial tasks until his death in 1843. There is an interesting aside to the Clover scandal. 
that sheds some light on the decree, on the degree to which the bishop's unnatural passions dominated his life. According to Hyde, eleven years before the White Hart incident, Bishop Jocelyn had been accused of propositioning a domestic manservant named James Byrne instead of flying the coop. The bishop responded to the charge by suing Byrne for libel and won. Poor Byrne was sentenced to a life was sentenced to prison for two years and publicly flogged within an inch of his life. Perhaps it was the memory of this grave injustice that inspired Reverend Jocelyn to compose the short epigraph, epitaph engraved on his nameless coffin. Bless, here lies the remains of a great sinner saved by grace, whose hope rests in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the fourth case cited by Hyde, the Reverend Thomas Jefferson, a prominent scholar and cleric at St. John, John's College, Cambridge, chose to stand trial against charges he had criminally, that he had criminally assaulted a 19-year-old youth, James Welsh, on Whit Sunday, 1823. During the trial that took place in Cambridge on July 23, 1823, the defense argued that Reverend Jefferson was a victim of entrapment and possible extortion. The prosecution claimed that he sexually accosted Welsh, who was fortunate enough to be rescued by some local residents before the act was completed. Following 17 hours of testimony, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. However, the university authorities did not appear to be totally convinced of Reverend Jefferson's innocence although he was never defrocked and was permitted to reclaim, retain his fellowship. The college authorities asked him to remove himself from the premises and relocate elsewhere, at least until such times as his innocence could be proved without a shadow of a doubt. Reverend Jefferson promptly obliged his superiors and never returned to St. John's College. Pederasty at Harrow, the Vaughan case. Although the Vaughan affair was one of the most important cases of criminal pederasty by an American cleric in the 19th century, Victorian England, the details of the affair did not become a matter of public knowledge until long after the principal players were settled in their graves. The very Reverend Charles John Vaughan, D.D. 1816-1897, was not yet 30 when he was elected headmaster of Harrow, one of Britain's prestigious seven public schools and the chief rival of Aden. Vaughan, a well-known English classical scholar and eloquent preacher, was himself a product of the English public, in fact, private boarding school system. As a youth, he attended rugby under the direction of the famed educational performer Dr. Thomas Arnold, D.D., and later matriculated at Trinity College, Cambridge, both institutions being solid stepping stones to upward mobility in Victorian society. As D.K. Chesterton so astutely observed, the public school is not a sort of refuge for aristocrats, like an insane asylum where they go in and never come out. It is a factory for aristocrats. They come out without ever having perceptibly gone in. Although Vaughan was initially drawn to the law, he finally settled upon holy orders, and in 1841, at the age of 25, took his first church assignment as vicar of St. Martin's in Leicester. And according to Christopher Tyerman, the author of A History of Harrow School, when Vaughan was put in charge of the school in 1845, it was in near ruin, physically and financially. Vaughan must have been an excellent administrator and charismatic fundraiser, for by the late 1850s, Harold's enrollment had jumped from 69 to over 500 boys, and the school's endowment program was solvent enough to cover a major cover major school renovations and the building of a fashionable new chapel. Vaughan appeared to be leading a charmed life. Not only had he entered into a very socially advantageous marriage, but his income, derived primarily from 
boarding fees was, according to Tyerman, sufficient enough to make him the equivalent of a modern millionaire. As for future plans, Vaughan was open not only to a bishop's mitre, but a seat in the House of Lords as well. Had it not been for a minor indiscretion that it took that took the form of a young Harold pupil named Alfred Petror, it is very likely that Vaughan would have realized all of this and more. Before examining the Vaughan Pretor case, a few words on the subject of vice within the context of the English boarding school. As Terman has reported, the term vice as it applied to the English boarding school covered a multitude of misdemeanors, including gambling, drinking, lewd speech, idleness, and coarse sexual habits, that is, solitary and group masturbation and sodomy. For, but these vices tend to fade into relative obscurity when compared to the dangers and viciousness of the viciousness of the bullying and flogging of fags by upperclassmen and the general violence associated with sport. Indeed, the term la vis anglais was used by many to refer to the common practice of flagellation or whipping with a birch rod, not sodomy. In general, boarding school authorities tended to turn a blind eye to adolescent sexual antics, including the common practice of assigning female names to exceptionally attractive and willing young boys. They could not, however, overlook pederastic overtures and affairs between students and headmasters that could wreak havoc on the reputation of their school. This brings us to the Vaughan Pretor affair. Alfred Pretor was a senior boy of the upper sixth. This would put his age at the time of his liaison with Harold's headmaster somewhere between 17 and 18. He must have been clueless about the serious nature of the relationship because one day in January of 1858, he told his close friend John Addington Simmons, a hypersensitive and easily scandalized youth, about a secret dalliance and even permitted Simmons to keep one of the passionate letters Alfred had received from Vaughan. It was only a short while after this revelation that Vaughan made, made an exploratory sexual pass at Simmons in his study when the young man came to him for an essay review. It proved to be a costly mistake for the headmaster. In Feasting with Panthers, literary historian Rupert Croft Crook, Croft Cook claimed that Vaughan was not a vicious creature and probably did not go beyond a patter, a hug, or at most a kiss. He suggested that Vaughan was not what would be called what could be called a serious offender, although he might be charged with gross indecency. The truth is that pederasts are rarely vicious. Slow and selective seduction, not violent, is the key to their success. Further, from subsequent events, we can deduce that the affair went beyond a mere hug and that Preter was not the first young man to fall under the spell of Vaughn's charms. In any case, the nature of Vaughn's actions continued to trouble Simmons, whose feelings of disapproval and were probably mixed consciously or unconsciously with pangs of jealousy that Vaughn had picked Pretter over him. In later years, Simmons would recall in his memoirs that the dormitory environment of Harrow and other English public schools was, was marked by the grossest of sexual immoralities, including repulsive scenes of onanism, mutual masturbation, and obscene orgies with older boys, preying on the younger boys, bitches. There is also some evidence that Simmons himself was exposed to sex abuse at the hands of some older cousins in his early boyhood years. However, it is clear that Simmons viewed Vaughn's actions in an entirely different light. The same hands Vaughn used to stroke Simmons' thigh were the same hands he used to distribute common communion in the school chapel, and it was Vaughn who had prepared both him and Preter for confirmation. Confused and troubled, Simmons remained silent. He did not reveal his knowledge of the affair or the headmaster's attempts to seduce him to either his parent or school officials. At the end of the second, at the end of the summer term, Simmons' father removed 
him from Harrow for health reasons, and young Simmons never returned there, so bitter were his memories of the school. He then enrolled at Oxford, where as a sensitive and intellectually refined 18-year-old, he began his own struggle with his homoerotic desires. In the summer of 1859, Simmons, still troubled by the Vaughan incident, finally confided the whole story to John Cummington, Conington, Corpus Professor of Latin, who had befriended the young man. Conington advised Simmons to tell his father, and Simmons did so. Upon hearing the charges against Vaughan and reading Vaughan's letter to Pretter that was still in his son's possession, the senior Simmons, a prominent Bristol physician, immediately contacted Vaughan and demanded his resignation. Not only was Vaughan forced to resign his position as headmaster of Harrow, but he also had to agree to never again accept any important ecclesiastical appointment, including the Bishopric of Rochester, as a condition for Dr. Simmons' silence. That Vaughan had been sexually involved with students before young Alfred appeared on the scene is evident by the plea of Mrs. Vaughan to Dr. Simmons that she was aware of her husband's weakness, but that it should not be allowed to overshadow his contributions to Harrow. Dr. Simmons was not convinced. On September 16, 1859, Vaughn announced that he was taking an early and unexpected retirement. After he left Harrow School, Vaughn continued to hold a variety of posts in the Anglican Church until his death in 1897, but was never consecrated a bishop, nor did he enter Parliament. Rumors of Vaughn's sexual attraction to young boys were bantered about Victorian high society for years after his retirement, but the actual details of the Predator case remained a well-guarded establishment Church of England secret until 1964, when Phyllis Grosskirth entered, revealed the first details of the Vaughan affair in her first biography of Simmons, The Woeful Victorian. In light of the recent rash of charges of sexual abuse of minors involving Catholic priests and hierarchy, it is of more than passing interest to note how judicious private actions and mutually agreed upon silence by establishment figures contributed to one of Victorian England's most successful cover-ups of clerical sexual malfeasance. The Cleveland Street Scandal The explosive West End affair began on July 4, 1889, with a relatively uncomplicated police investigation of a theft of money from the Central Telegraph Office located in the General Post Office, GPO West, in London. The key suspect was a 15-year-old telegraph messenger boy, Charles Charles Thomas Swinscow, who appeared to have an unexplainable source of money above and beyond his meager salary. According to H. Montgomery Hyde, who devoted an entire book to the scandal, when questioned by a retired police constable, Luke Hanks, a GPO employee, Swinscow, oblivious to the serious nature of his admission, told him that he supplemented his wages by sexually servicing adult men at a male school brothel on Cleveland Street at Fitzroy Square, operated by one Charles Hammond. The young man told P.C. Hanks that he had been originally solicited by a fellow telegraph employee with the disingenuous last name of Henry Newlove, who worked for Hammond. After a preliminary investigation that included an interview with Newlove and two other telegraph boys, Hanks submitted his report to the Postmaster General, who in turn contacted the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Scotland Yard, for assistance. Chief Inspector Frederick Aberline was assigned as the principal investigator of the case. Hammond's house of ill repute, sometimes referred to as a maison de passe, was immediately put under surveillance and arrest warrants issued for Hammond. The 18-year-old new love and other close associate, the phony Reverend George Veck, age 45, a homosexual who lived with Hammond and kept a 17-year-old boy named George Barber, whom he passed off as his son. But the police had not acted quickly enough. 
By the time they reached 19 Cleveland Street, Hammond and Becht had disappeared, leaving the naive New Love holding the bag. As New Love was being hauled off to the police station from his home, he complained to the inspector Abilene that it was unfair that he should be prosecuted while men in high positions went free. Among the newly placed personages New Love named as visitors to the Cleveland Street brothel were Lord Arthur Somerset, known as Mr. Lord Arthur Somerset, alias Mr. Brown, a major in the Royal House Horse Guards and superintendent of the stables, and extra equerry to the Prince of Wales, the Earl of Euston, a sophisticated man about town and high-degree mason, a Colonel Gervois of the Winchester Army Barracks, and most importantly, P.A.B. Prince Albert Victor, the eldest son of the Prince of Wales and the successor to the British throne. Whitehall men, the royalists, were alerted to the potentially explosive nature of the Cleveland Street case. Obviously, this was not your ordinary case of homosexual solicitation and underage prostitution. Aberlane knew that the rules of the game had just undergone a dramatic change. To add to Aberlane's woes, he was informed that Hammond, the key figure in the affair, had already fled across the Channel to France to escape prosecution. Scotland Yard immediately alerted police officials in Paris and Brussels as to the nature of the charges against Hammond and asked that his whereabouts and contacts be carefully monitored. Under the existing extradition laws between England and France, the French government had the power to authorize the apprehension of Hammond, who was traveling with Ames, an underage English boy, and shipped them, back, shipped them both back to, on an English freighter on the next tide. However, it soon became clear that the royalists and Whitehall were more interested in keeping Hammond out of England than bringing him home to stand trial. Nor was Hammond the only suspect to fly the coop. Before Abilene could obtain a warrant for the arrest of Lord Somerset, against whom there was prima facie evidence in the form of signed postal orders issued to a telegraph boy in Hammond's employ, the inspector learned that Somerset had taken a sudden four-month leave from his regiment and fled to Paris to escape the law. Before leaving England, Somerset made arrangements for a young English solicitor by the name of Arthur Newton to handle the charges against him and to aid in the defense of Beck and New Love. Somerset also had Newton act as his go-between with Hammond, who was demanding a large sum of hush money from Somerset, reportedly in the realm of 2,000 pounds, and first-class tickets to America for himself and his boy Ames. Meanwhile, in London, preparations were underway for the first of three trials connected with to the Cleveland Street affair. Inspector Abilene had already pieced together a fairly accurate picture of Hammond's illegal operation from the testimony of Beck and Newlove and that of the telegraph boys, including George Wright, Charles Thickbroom, William Perkins, Alger, Algernon Allies, and Charlie Swinscow, and Beck's boy, George Barber. The boys ranged in age from 15 to 19. They told Abilene that before bringing them to Cleveland Street to service gentlemen, New Love had introduced them to various homosexual acts, including mutual masturbation, fellatio, and sodomy, incomplete, in the basement laboratory of the GPO building. None of the telegraph boys could be considered professional prostitutes. Their simplicity and lack of guile certainly appeared to have influenced both P.C. Hanks and Inspector Abilene in their favor. They were fresh-faced lads, unsophisticated to the ways of the world, traits that would make them extra appealing to Hammond's pederast clientele. They all came from respectable families. When interrogated by Abilene, all expressed a sense of shame for their actions and were openly distressed when forced to reveal to their parents the exact nature of the work they performed for Hammond. 
However, Nulov, who had procured their services for Hammond, argued that he never corrupted any of the boys. He said that the telegraph boys in general were notorious for their willingness to engage in sex play with males willing to pay for their services. So presumably there was no problem in having them prostitute themselves with adult men with unnatural sexual appetites. He said that Hammond received between half, between a half to a whole sovereign per trick from his clients and paid out four shillings to the boy. The trial of Vec and Nulov. On September 11, 1889, Vec and Nulov stood before Judge Sir Thomas Chamber, 72, at the Old Bailey, London's main courthouse, on charges of violating the 1885 anti-sodomy statute, Lubbershire Amendment, by conspiring to incite and procure diverse persons to commit the abominable crime of buggery against the peace of Her Majesty the Queen. Evidence against the two men had already been given by the Telegraph Boys at preliminary hearings on August 27 and September 4. Interestingly, the subject matter of the trial was found to be so offensive that Judge Chambers ordered the removal of the only woman in the courtroom. Newton, no doubt, with an eye towards the interests of his primary client, Lord Somerset, who was picking up all the legal tabs, urged both men to plead guilty, which meant they would not be required to testify and reveal other persons connected with Hammond's male brothel, including Somerset. Beck was sentenced to nine months hard labor and new love to four. The fact that both men, especially the older Beck, were led off with relatively light sentences angered Lubbershire, who had been watching and weighing the Cleveland Street proceedings through his own political prism. He rose to his feet on the floor of Parliament and charged that the Home Office had cut a deal with Newton and his clients to avoid a wider public scandal, a charge that government officials officially denied. By this time, a warrant had been prepared for the arrest of Somerset, but the summons could not be served until he returned to England. From his listening post in Paris, Somerset was well aware that his chances at a successful defense were near nil as long as allies, his favorite, and the other telegraph boys were around to testify against him. The burning question was how to get rid of the witnesses. By late September, a solution was at hand. Bribe the witnesses to leave the country. One of Newton's agents, Adolf de Gallo, approached Wright and Swinscow and tried to get the boys to go to Australia, while another agent, Frederick Taylorson, attempted to bribe allies to go to America. Newton had made similar contacts with Thick Broom and Perkins. The boys' parents were not advised of the arrangements were being made to settle their sons abroad. <clears throat> On October 16, 1889, Whitehall was alerted Whitehall was alerted to the fact that Somerset had returned to England for his grandmother's funeral, after which he spent several days making the rounds of political and personal associates at various high government offices and visiting his club in London. Under orders from the Prince of Wales and with the knowledge of Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, he was permitted to leave England again for the continent unmolested. The official argument against his arrest was that the prosecution of Somerset as a sodomite would seriously injure public morality without any commensurate advantage. His sufferings from a self-imposed exile were seen as being sufficient punishment for his alleged misdemeanor. In any case, the blame for letting Somerset escape for the second time again was cast upon Scotland Yard. Lord Somerset had just comfortably situated himself in Rouen and was beginning to contemplate a brighter future when the second trial of the Cleveland Street scandal opened at the Old Bailey with an entirely new cast of characters. Lord Houston sues for libel. The Park Houston trial, the last of the three Cleveland Street cases, opened at the start of the new year. The, new, the North London Press and its editor, the radical journalist Ernest Park, were charged with the criminal 
libeling of Lord Houston, Henry James Fielding, Henry James Fitzroy, whom the newspaper had publicly implicated in the Cleveland Street scandal in a fully illustrated featured article published in on November 16, 1889. Houston, a large strapping figure of a man and a powerful mason not had unlike lord somerset decided to publicly challenge his the accusation that he patronized the cleveland street brothel like lubashare who not unexpectedly was carefully monitoring all the events connected with the scandal from his mp seat park was convinced that both hammond and somerset were tipped off by government agents, enabling them to flee to England and escape prosecution. Further, he also shared Labby's openly stated opinion that these same officials had negotiated a settlement with Vec and Nulov to protect the reputations of certain prominent public figures. Both men were certain that cover-up was written all over the Cleveland Street scandal. The sensational trial opened at the Old Bailey on January 15, 1890, with Sir Henry Hanging Judge Hawkins presiding. Park's case against Houston was built upon evidence gathered from his own investigation and from interviews with various eyewitnesses, the most important of which was a well-known middle-aged Irish homosexual prostitute, John Saul, nicknamed Dublin Jack, who had worked for Hammond for 10 years. It is an important feature of the Cleveland Street scandal that while both Saul and Newlove had given a statement to Inspector Abilene identifying Lord Houston as one of his clients, Houston was never picked up for questioning, nor had a warrant been sworn out for his arrest, as in the case of Lord Somerset. Perhaps this oversight was connected to the strong connections between the Freemasons and Scotland Yard. Also, it was rumored that Lord Houston had previously submitted to blackmail threats in connection with his homosexual relationship with Robert Cliburn, a notorious member of London's homosexual underworld. In any case, Saul testified under oath that Houston or the Duke had visited the brothel at least five times between 1887 and 1889. Park also had additional witnesses to back up his story. Saul, however, claimed that the Earl was not a sodomite, but liked to play with you, then spend on your belly. The prosecution admitted that Houston had visited the Hammond establishment not but only once and by mistake. Houston swore that he had left the premises as soon as he discovered that he was in a male brothel and not a house of post-plastique female burlesque. Saul was denounced as a low life. In the end, the jury went against Park, whose case was weakened by his solicitor's failure to call either Inspector Abilene or Newlove to the stand and his own unwillingness to engage in a breach of faith by revealing the names of certain sources quoted in his November article. He was convicted of libel without justification and harshly lectured and sentenced to 12 months imprisonment by Judge Hawkins. Saul was not arrested, nor was he ever prosecuted for perjury or defaming of the Duke. Lord Houston was completely exonerated. After the sentencing, an editorial titled The Horrible National Scandal appeared in the Reynolds, a Labor Sunday paper with a strong anti-establishment bent, alleging that Mr. Park was made an example to others who dare tamper with the name of our virtuous and noble aristocracy. Why were the wretched telegraph boys taken to the old bailey whilst Lord Arthur Somerset, being duly warned of what had occurred, made his escape, and how and is now living in clover abroad? All this requires but all this requires but we suspect what will not attain but we suspect will not attain obtain satisfactory explanation. A parliamentary inquiry cannot open the mouths of those who are determined to keep them closed. Arthur Newton, convicted of conspiracy. The truth, of course, was that while Lord Somerset may have been living in clover on the continent, it was not comfortably so. 
the plan to get rid of the Telegraph Boy witnesses against Lord Somerset had backfired. Backfired. Both Somerset and his solicitor, Newton, had made the mistake of underestimating the character and resolve of the boys who had been propositioned to leave the country. The incident, incident had been forthrightly reported to Inspector Abilene, and on December 23, 1889, Newton and two of his agents, DeGallo and Taylorson, were hauled before, the, before Magistrate James Vaughan at the Bower Street Police Court to face charges of witness tampering and the obstruction of justice. On January 16, on January 6, 1890, the hearings resumed before Mr. Vaughan and lasted the rest of the week. The charges against DeGallo were dismissed and Taylorson was eventually acquitted even though the prosecution produced three witnesses from Belgium who linked him and Newton with Hammond's successful escape with young Ames to America aboard the board the Penland. The case against Newton was a different matter. Five months later, on May 16, 1890, Somerset's solicitor faced a jury at the Queen's Bench Division and the Law Courts with Mr. Justice Matthew Kay presiding. The trial was marked by a conspicuous lack of fervor by the government, government's prosecuting counsel. The jury appeared to be swayed by Newton's incredulous plea that he had only that he only had the boys' interests at heart when he tried to get them out of England. But Judge Cave was not impressed. On May 20, 1890, he sentenced Newton to six weeks in Holloway Prison, a symbolic rather than punitive punishment. Even so, it was an incredibly light sentence that once again, in Park's words, had cover-up written all over it. And that's the conclusion of my reading from the right of sodomy for today, and so I'll end my podcast here. There's no time for the catechism. I'm down to 51 minutes. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.